Well, if you haven't already, take your Bibles. There's a Bible in front of you. In fact, we just bought several new ones to replace some of the pew Bibles that were starting to get rough. Um, and open to the very front of the Bible to find chapter 3. It will be maybe one or two pages in. Genesis chapter 3. I know my, je- my sermon notes say Genesis 1. That's just because I'm not bright. Um, but Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read for you, uh, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7, and then we're going to work our way through that important passage. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the woman or the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. Why? For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. May the Lord bless his word. Now, we're going to start out by reminding you why I'm going through Genesis right now and why I want to take the time, having already preached all the way through the book of Genesis many years ago. And the reason is because there is an assault on the issue of truth and what is truth and the nature of the value and the purpose of the Bible in the life of the church and for every Christian. And so all I'm really doing is putting the Bible, every time I get up here and preach and we open up Genesis, I'm taking it and I'm shoving it in your face, so to speak, and I'm saying, here's what it says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because all around us right now on this Lord's Day, there are men and women both climbing up into pulpits who will deal with this passage and they will not tell you what it says and they will not believe that it says what it says and they will try to make it something other than what it says or different from what it says. So some will argue that Adam and Eve are simply archetypes of humanity, that they're not an actual literal couple. Some building off of that will say that all this is, is that whoever wrote this, because we don't know, even though the Bible says we know, that whoever wrote this is treating them as a literary device, meaning there wasn't a real Adam and a real Eve. There were just There is just a desire to share a story about why brokenness is in the world. And so we're going to invent these two people, and we're going to create a story around them. And in that, we're going to use it to tell a story about why things are broken and messed up in our world. One of the most common things that you'll read nowadays among those who would call themselves conservative theologians and conservative pastors is that it is an actual couple, Adam and Eve, but they are just one of many couples existing in a sea of humanity and who have developed over time through the evolutionary process. And out of that mass of humanity, God in his will and wisdom chose these two to call Adam and Eve and to treat as the key couple through which all of human history would be explained. In other words, in all of these, there's some attempt to make the story something other than just what I read for you and what we've looked at over the last several weeks in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And I'm putting before you again today, what do you believe? What do you believe? It's very important in my heart what you believe on one level, but I can't get in your heart and I can't change your heart, but I can put before you that this is what the scripture says and you are right now confronted with that and you're going to have to make some decisions on whether you accept it or not. But I can tell you one thing. 
When you ask the Bible, what does the Bible say about this couple? It's not hard at all. You don't have to scratch your head. You don't have to read thousands of pages. All you have to do is look at the Bible, and you will find that they are always treated as the first humans, that they are always treated as real, not archetypes, that their lives and their choices had a massive impact upon all of us. And when you look at the New Testament and say, well, how does the New Testament treat this Old Testament story? Is it a, is it a shadow? Is it, is it a picture? Is it what, what's going on? They always treat every time Adam and Eve as actual people and this event as an actual event. No if, ands, or but. Every time. What Genesis 3 does, and it is an incredibly important chapter uh, in, in the Bible, is it explains for all of us everything that's wrong. In fact, I have a sermon that I have preached a couple of times um, that is a favorite of mine, even though it's a somewhat offensive, especially the titles, and that is, Why Do Babies Die? Why do babies die? Why does grandma die? Why does cancer invade your body? Why do bones break? Why does, why does marriages fall apart? Why do you not like that person? And why have you been so horribly treated or horribly abused by others? Why does rape occur? And why does kidnapping and slavery and lies and everything else that we all do and have seen and participated in on the highest degree and the lowest degree, why does it all happen? Genesis 3 explains it. Now, up to this point, we have seen that everything was good. The only not good was that there was no one for Adam, and then God made Eve for Adam, and it was very good. All of that's going to change. And from this chapter forward, nothing in the Bible will ever read like the first two chapters until you get to the very end when the new heavens and earth are made. What we will watch in these few verses is the malignant scheme of Satan working its way out in the life of this first couple, and even worse is the foolish, selfish decision made by Adam, our head and representative of all of humanity, where he made the, uh, the horrid choice to abandon God and pursue his own way, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, this serpent, we are introduced right away in verse 1 to this serpent. I want to briefly talk about it because it's not central to the point. What is it? Well, it's a serpent. That's all the word means. It's a broader word than just merely a snake, but it's anything that would have the qualities of a serpent. No explanation about it, no introduction to it. It just, here's the serpent, and the serpent begins to speak to Eve. Its character is described as being the most crafty of any beast of the field. This craftiness or this cleverness of speech or shrewdness deals in the area of speech. It is the idea of being good with your words, being a wordsmith. Now, when you have a person who is a godly individual and righteous, and they're good with words, nothing but blessing comes from that person. There are people I've, I've been blessed to read over the years or to hear who are just gifted with the use of words, and they have an incredible way of describing and explaining things that are a blessing to my soul or yours. But then there's the wicked and there's the fool, and there's the evil one, and the rebel, and there are those in that class as well who are also very good with words, and they are able to take words and work them until you are so tied up in knots you don't know how to get yourself undone. They can wind you up, right? You know who I'm talking about. There are people who can just wind you up with the greatest of ease, and they do it with their tongue, and they just cut and slash. There are others who will get you so confused that by the time you're done, you don't know what you believe anymore because they just are working it out in your life through their words. They are ones who fool you and lead you astray. And that's what you have here. You have this serpent who is this wordsmith, but only for evil. Now, 
This is a beast, and yet the Scripture makes it clear that there's far more than a beast, and yet it doesn't give us any explanation, so we need to be careful we don't go farther than what the text actually gives to us. The identity of the serpent, though, is explicitly told for, of us later in the Bible. In Revelation, he's described as the dragon of old, the serpent of old, and he is Satan himself, which is why we stopped, and last sermon, I spent an entire hour just teaching you a basic theology of Satan. If you haven't heard that, you should hear it. It would be worth your time. We do see in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, if you just let your eyes go down there, in Genesis 3, you have the cursing of God after the sin had come. And in verse 14, he treats the serpent as an animal and talks about how he will now crawl on his belly. Now, there, we'll deal with that when we get to it next sermon that I preach. But in verse 15, he takes it more than an animal and shows that there's something greater than just merely a beast and that somehow this serpent has, is, has a relationship with the woman of enmity, that they are against each other. But not only her, but against her offspring or seed and his. You should notice that. We'll look at that in detail when we get to it. But then it goes, uh, the third line, it says, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you will bruise, bruise him on the heel. Also, it goes back to the serpent, Satan himself, and talks about his eventual doom. And so what you have in the Bible here is, is first a focus upon the animal, and then something greater than the animal, which the rest of the Bible tells us was Satan himself. Now, there's always a couple of things in which you'll find Satan consistent. Again, hear that sermon from last time, and it will fill in a lot of gaps that you may have. But the first is very simply this. He will always be resisting God. So if you are in the Bible reading uh, for the ladies of the church that resolve Bible reading, here's something that can be kind of fun, especially if you're using the U version, the little uh, app, because it has all those different colors, and you can tap on a verse and then add a color. Well, assign a color, whatever you want, I don't care, but assign a color literally as you see people resisting the plan of God or the purposes of God. And Lord knows you're going to see it all the way through the Old Testament. Genesis was filled with it all right away. And you saw it in Exodus with Pharaoh, and you saw it with the people who were complaining, and, and they were struck dead, you know, and the story about how, well, Moses has been gone for a long time, and so what are we going to do? Make for us an idol, and, and Aaron makes the idol right, and then all of a sudden, all kinds of bad things happen. That's a, somebody resisting and fighting against God. The promise here in Genesis 3 is that the seed of Satan shall constantly resist the ways of God and the purposes of God. Just tap on those and highlight them as you read, and you'll see a constant thread through all of the Bible where they were trying to stop short the coming of Christ and even his death and resurrection. And then along with that, do another color that's a different one that stands out to you where God then overcomes the evil schemes of Satan. Again, you can look at Joseph, right? And you watch all the things that happened to Joseph and the mistreatment of his by his brothers and, and the lies of Potiphar's wife and everything that happened to him. And you're like, how can so much go wrong with one man's life? And yet at the end of it all, we find out that it was all God working and that God put him there so that he might be able to bring the young nation of Israel into a place of safety until it was time for the nation to be born. And so then you get to highlight those passages, and then you can laugh, and you can mock Satan to your heart's content, as you see that every time that he rises up and he does his wickedness, God is there working right alongside him to accomplish his own perfect purposes. Even the slaying of all of those infants in Matthew were so that Scripture was fulfilled and that Christ would go to Egypt, and all of these different things would be moved about as God so purposed. This is what Satan does. He resists God, and then God just uses that resistance for his own purposes. The second thing is going to be to lie, and you're going to see that today. In fact, he is such that he will use truth as a tool to lie. 
But you need never to be fooled that whenever Satan is speaking, no matter if it's true or not, it ultimately is designed to end in a lie. And so truth only becomes a tool to deceive. This is what we have to learn to do when we're talking to people, not knowing their heart, not knowing their motives, and not knowing from where they came, that when they start to ask us a series of questions, we ought to always ask yourself, from what foundation are they asking these questions? What is their goal? What is their purpose? Why are these things occurring? Now, with that in mind, we're going to just look at all three characters in this story. In verses 1 through 5, we'll look at Satan and Eve, and then we'll also look at Adam, who is, of course, key to this whole thing. Now, Satan's plan of attack in verse 1 is that he starts with that question. He's going to deal with truth, and he's going to attack there. And it's very innocent-seeming, but it's designed to lead somewhere. Always it's designed to lead somewhere. And one of the things that you can learn as a human being that will do you well in life is understand that very seldom does anyone ever ask you an innocent question. Very seldom are they just asking you for no purpose. There's a reason behind it. And you want to be very wise and careful before you open your mouth and start blathering away whatever you think you ought to blather when you don't know why the person is asking you the things that they're asking you. As I told, told my kids, and I taught my wife, and I still remind myself all the time, just because someone asks you a question doesn't mean you have to answer the question. You're not compelled to answer anything. You can just remain silent. You can just reject it out of hand. He comes to her, and he asks her a question. Now, why is there this question? It's an innocent-sounding question asked by Satan, but it's designed to lead her astray. Instead of being cautious because she's utterly innocent, she thinks nothing of it and she answers back. But notice how he phrases it. He sta- it's stated in the negative. He says again, has God in see- indeed, has God said you shall not, that's the negative, the not, eat from any tree of the garden. That's not how God said it to Adam. Compare this to what God said. He said, from any tree of the trees you may freely eat. For God, in his statement, it was an emphasis upon our freedom. You can eat anything you want in this entire garden except for this one. And from from Satan's perspective, it's already being cast in a negative way. I want you to think about what that garden must have looked like because it was planted by garden in the presence of Adam so that Adam now had a model for what he was to do for the rest of the world as he brought the rest of the world under dominion. I want you to think about what a master gardener God was. I want you to think about what God was doing. He didn't plant one apple tree and that's what you got. In fact, I would be horrified if that was true and he only had golden delicious because I can't stand those things. Right? And you're like, that's it? He had every apple that could be an apple, and every kind of apple, and every texture of apple. In fact, there were apple trees there that we don't even know about because we haven't gotten around to creating them from apples. He had every kind of pear, every kind of every tree that you can imagine. They all were there, and he was showing them, this is what I've given for you Every taste, every smell, every texture, every delight, it's all hanging heavy on all of these trees. You go and enjoy it. But this one belongs to me. You don't get that one. That's it. And already that freedom is being limited by Satan so that it's what we don't get rather than all that we have been given. Think about how often you and I will choose sin, and it's because we've worked our things out in that way. Somehow God is keeping something from us. Somehow God is preventing something that we should enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. Parents, think about the last time you talked to maybe one of your older kids, and they were like, but what's wrong with it, Mom? And you're like, there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing at all. But the way that you did it, oh, sweetheart, that does not belong to you. That's not yours to enjoy. You can't have that. 
You can't do that yet. God has not ordained that for you yet. And what they're thinking is somehow I am being withheld what I belong, belongs to me and ought to be mine. And, and you're trying to help them say no in its proper context and in its proper time and its proper way. Then we can delight in these things in purity. Even now, you can ask yourself, what is it that you are not allowed to enjoy lawfully, but that you are now taking unlawfully? What are the things that you are doing, perhaps now that you've worked it out in your mind, that the Scripture is easy to understand, and you know I ought not to do it, but in your mind you've worked it out that it'll be okay? He lets her answer then in verses 2 and 3. We'll look at that in a moment. But we want to look just at him right now. But I want you to see that after she answers, he then goes for the throat. He immediately then goes right in and he gives his version of the motive behind God's prohibition. So he, he re- flat out rejects what she says in verses 2 and 3. And he attacks the goodness of God. Notice what he says in verse 4. You shall surely not die. Notice the absoluteness. Notice the certainty of his words. And notice the vile nature of them. And then from that, he then gives his argument for why that's true. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he immediately then twists the thing, the mind and intention of God so that it now becomes something bad. Now, what you need to see here, and we could do a whole sermon on it, but we won't, is that in this, what we see is the basic reality of what we see every day today. And that is that the issue will always deal with the core of what is truth. The battleground is always truth. This is what you guys have to be doing in your homes, right? Husbands, you need to be speaking truth to your wife. You need to be speaking truth to your children. You need to be expecting it back to you. You need to be a man literally immersed in truth so that all that you are doing is surrounded and informed by truth and guided by truth and founded on truth. Your wife should be able to call you on the carpet when you are not in accordance to truth. Your children should be able to look at you puzzled and say, but dad, didn't you say? Because they see you not walking in accordance to truth. Truth must be at the core of what you are. And that is always where it's going to be attacked. That's why pulpits today, right now, are spouting off every kind of lie known to mankind Because Satan has been effective in getting us to give up a little truth here and a little truth there until we're all of a sudden in the arena of falsehood. Satan always plays with truth. He always will make the argument truth is something less clear than it really is. Beloved, truth is not a series of grays. Truth is truth. And when it's not truth, it's not truth. It's not just less true. Truth is never elastic. Truth is never subject to vagaries. It's not open to interpretation. You don't have your truth, and I have my truth. Truth belongs to God, and that's where you need to start. God always owns truth. He defines truth. But the moment you see truth as something outside of God, then you start down a path that will always lead to destruction every time. Satan wants us to first consider our options. Satan wants us to step just half a step away from the Bible. It's not like we're rejecting the Bible. No, no, no. I I believe the Word of God is the Word of God. I believe that it has many things that we ought to follow. But it will take us just a slight step away so that we now are more open-minded. Beloved, let me be blunt. The Christian faith is the most closed-minded thing you'll ever meet. And if any of you are trying to be open-minded, you're already a fool. There's nothing open-minded about the Christian faith. There is one way and only one way that you will ever see God, and that is through Christ. He is the only way, he is the only life, and is the only truth. Nothing else will bring you to salvation. Nothing else will deal with your sin. Nothing else will fix anything. There's no playing around with that. You don't get to say, well, I believe in Christ, but I reject these other uncomfortable things. No, you have to accept the whole thing. It's a package deal. 
Let me ask you questions. Has God really said to you, flee from idolatry? Like it says in 1 Corinthians. Has God really said, abstain from sexual immorality? Has he really said it? Do you believe that? Has God really said, let him who steals steal no longer? Or has he actually said, love your neighbors and pray for those who persecute you? Has God really said, live with your wife in an understanding manner? Men, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Has God really said that? Has God honestly said, let every person be in subjection to the governing authority? Surely, surely you jest. We could go on and on. Cultural standards too often replace biblical standards, and social rights replace biblical standards. Never get into a theoretical argument on right or wrong. Never play the game, what if? Because they seldom produce anything righteous, but they do give a lot of room for sin. This is all he's doing. God has not said it. This is what will happen, and the lie is there. Now let's look at Eve. In verses 2 and 3, she gives an answer. She said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Now, she doesn't rightly respond to him with proper information. And it's worth noting that we don't know what Adam told her. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it is a good reminder for us to be clear and precise in what we say. Now, only Adam, and I made this point earlier in another sermon, and I want you to see why it mattered. Only Adam was told not to eat of the fruit. Only Adam was given that command. Eve did not even exist at that time. So only Adam was given that responsibility to know the word of God, the revelation of God. God has spoken his will. This is my will. All of this, enjoy. But that, you cannot. That's mine. Everything else is yours. And it was Adam's job to teach Eve. And so we only only know this, is that Adam told her something, but she couldn't even get that right. So we don't know if it's because of what Adam said or what. Eve added. We do know this, that she did add the phrase, do not touch it. Nowhere was that forbidden. But come on, let's talk. Mom and dads? Joey? Leave those cookies alone. Don't even, what? Look at them. Don't even think about it. And we, I mean, we just start adding. What we really don't want is the cookies to disappear down Joey's throat. That's all we want, but we, we've always got to add more things. And that's possibly, very probably, what I think, at least, that Adam did. Sweetheart, we can eat all of this. Not that one. Don't even touch that one. We'll, we'll die. We don't know what that means, but we'll die. All we know is that that was what she said to him. Second, I want you to notice that she continued in her conversation once the goodness of God was questioned. The first question was relatively innocent. We know what was behind it, but she didn't, so she answered it. But the moment that he said what he said in verse 4, you shall surely not die, what he has done right there is he has established himself as the jury and judge of God's purposes and intentions. He has said, God is not telling you the truth. That's not true. And at that moment, she should have said, whoa, ho, ho, Back off. We're done. We're done here. She should have just turned on her heel and said, I don't know what you are, but we are not talking. He is my God. He is true. He is good. And I leave it right there. That's where it should be. That's where you and I should be. But we are much like others. We allow those things to stay. She should have just put up the hand, stopped him in mid-voice, but she didn't. How often has marriages been destroyed simply because a person talking has a listening ear or an understanding attitude. So we find that person who can understand our problems and we air our grievances. And then we end up shipwrecking our marriage when in fact that person, if they had been a true friend, would have put up their hand and said, whoa, whoa, you're talking to the wrong person. 
Go talk to your husband about that. Go talk to your wife about that. Work that out. I am not the person you need. How many times have we allowed those kinds of voices into our life? Who are you maybe right now listening to? You got a boyfriend who's telling you, no, sweetie, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's not okay. Well, we're going we're gonna to eventually get married. No, then wait. Well, no, no, that's not theft. Well, no, God created everything, so what's wrong with this joint? Well, we can go on and on and on and on, right? We can play the games. They're all there. We all know it. We've all played it. Where we let somebody who has shrewd words, they're good with words. We haven't figured out a way around it, right? How many times have you done that in your life? That you can't figure a way around this, so you go find somebody who's smarter than you who will help you think for a way around it. And then once you're around it, you're like, good. That's all Satan is doing. Being shrewd with his words, he's working the system, and she's buying into it. I want you to then also notice on the third point is that she allowed wrong thinking and bad information to remain in her mind. We're not given a time frame. All we know is this. In verse 6, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good. At some point, it could have been minutes, it could have been hours, it could have been days. We don't know. It doesn't tell us there. But at some point, it clicked. In other words, what she did was she kept the lies of Satan in her mind. She let them roll around in her mind and examine them, but only with the limited ability of her own mind. Instead of just saying, I don't know a whole lot, but I know this. That's not true. That's not who God is. I reject it. She allowed it to stay, just like you and I. This is a great frustration of the internet age for any pastor is how many other voices are talking into your life? How many of you come on a Sunday with the arrogant mindset, and I, I say it arrogant because I don't know what else to call it, where you will decide whether you accept what is taught, whether you agree with that or you agree with this. I can't tell you the number of people over the years I've sat with who have come and they say, well, you know, I'll decide that. And I just encourage them to go somewhere else because they're going to eventually go somewhere else. At some point, the Word of God has to be taught and you have to have it open and you look down and say, yep, that's what it says and we're not going to play with it. But the idea of we'll, we'll allow other people and we end up having all of these voices in their heads all competing and whoever is really good with the words ultimately wins and that's who we go with. That's what she's doing, beloved. She didn't leave the words behind and discard them. She let them stay in her head and she worked with it. And ultimately what happens is my fourth point and that is that she came to decide that she believed that she could stand in judgment of God. Notice, it says, when the woman saw, and here's where the judgment is, that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took it and she ate. All of that she is saying, she decided God was wrong. She decided this won't hurt me. She decided this will help me. She decided all kinds of things, just like you and I do all the time, every single day, in our own lives, in our marriages, with our children, and back and forth. We're all making these decisions. And it's always afterward when the consequences hit us so hard. I didn't know. I didn't think. You're right. You didn't think. You certainly didn't think according to the word. This is what happens she now has judged God to be wrong. She has judged that God is not true to his word, that he is not good to them. He is not utterly generous, even though she didn't exist a few days earlier. Her entire existence is dependent upon the goodness of God and the mercies of God that she is drawing in air and enjoying the beauty of a creation unstained by sin. And she's there, and she says, no. He's not been good to me. In fact, there's a fascinating wordplay going on here. Remember how in 
in Genesis 2, God kept, and 1, God kept saying that things were good, right? It's good, it's good, it's good. It's the same word. God says it's good, what is it? This is an easy question. What is it? Good. But what did she see the fruit to be? Good. Was it good? No. And yet that's what we're still doing to this day. We're calling good what God said is not good. And God keeps saying, this is good. And we say, no, that's something else. In fact, let me tell you, any of you who have not come to faith in Christ Jesus, if, you, if you're still sitting and you're like, I don't know, I don't agree with that, I ask you just simply this, what is it that puts you off? In fact, I'll tell you, those of you who have walked away from the faith and you're like, yeah, no, I don't accept that anymore, what is it that you walked away from? Because it wasn't something good, because you don't walk away from good. You walked away from something in your own mind that you said is not good. And you're saying to yourself that this is good. Whatever this is, it's good. Beloved, it's not good. Never has been good. Never will be good. I've watched people walk through their whole life rejecting what God says is good. Jesus Christ, come, drink. You who are thirsty, come and drink. You who are hungry, come and eat. I will give it all to you. You who are dead, come and live. You who are guilty, come and be forgiven. He keeps saying this to us. And we keep saying no, because we think that if we do that, we lose something. Yeah, we lose everything that brings us death and judgment. Now, in all of this, the Bible says one thing very clearly. Eve was deceived. For all of what's going on here, and it's all wrong, wrong, it's wicked, but it's also deception. The Bible never makes her responsible for the sin that's in our lives. For Eve, as a wife and as a woman, she is being tricked by Satan, she is being deceived, and every time the Bible refers to this event, it always makes the point that Eve was deceived. It's not that her act was an accident or an oopsie. It was sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls it sin. He says that she transgressed, which is a Bible word for sin. She went against or stepped over the line that God's put. But it was through deception, and it was not her ultimate responsibility that sin entered the world. That's Adam. So let's look at Adam. He's got a tiny part in this, even though it's a huge one in our lives. So in verse 6, near the bottom of it, it says, she took from its fruit and ate, and now we finally got Adam. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. Her deception is Adam's choice. There's no excuse ever given in the Bible for Adam's decision. Adam was spoken to personally by God, and he was shown all of what God had ordained for him. He had been given the fullness of God's revelation for that time. He knew what was right and he knew what was wrong. And he was the head of all of humanity. He made a choice. The same choice that you and I make over and over and over again. Will I follow God or will I follow someone else? And no one knows what would have happened because sin and death did not exist in all of creation when Eve ate. When his wife ate, sin existed for her. What would have happened if he had said, woman, this was wrong. This is wrong. I don't know what to do to fix it, but this is wrong. No, I will not eat with you. I must go to God. I must find out what they talk to each other every night, it says, in the eve and the coolness of the evening. God walked with him and spoke with him. All he had to do was wait, say, I'll talk to him. I don't know what to do, but this is wrong. We don't know what would have happened if he had just been a man. In fact, it's embarrassing how little information we're given. She took it, ate it, says, here, okay. But here's what's so horrible about it, because at the core of it, 
he had a choice. He had a choice, and it was wife or God. Wife or God. And you're still making these choices, and I'm still making these choices. My job or God. My girlfriend or boyfriend, God. My reputation or God. My retirement or God. My comfort or God. We do it. Right? We're all making those choices. And then when it gets that uncomfortable, we start to say, we need a wordsmith. We need somebody shrewd with words who will help us out of this trap because it looks like this or this. No, it's that simple. Jesus said those painful words, I did not come to bring peace. I came to put husband against wife, children against parents, and we hate that passage. No, no. He had a choice. Will I follow my wife or will I follow my Lord? And he made his choice. And we're still making that choice all the time in our own lives. And all brings to bear, the Bible takes this little tiny moment, this little thing, and it makes a huge issue about the whole nature of what's called headship and representation. See, it's not a little deal, it's a huge deal. Now, we already saw in prior sermons that the Bible made it clear that the man would be the head of the marital relationship. And, it's, and we always think, well, that makes us in charge. No, that makes you irresponsible. That's a little different. Yeah, you're in charge in one sense, but what's more important is that you're responsible. The challenge for many is whether they like that or they agree with that or are willing to embrace it and submit themselves to it. But never is there a question whether the Bible teaches it, because it does. But like all things biblical, whether we like or approve something taught in the Bible never changes that it is taught as true in the Bible. You can will all you want that God not be God and that there not be a God, but it doesn't make God not there. And on the day of judgment, he won't say to you when you stand before him in all of his glory, and you say, yeah, but I didn't believe you existed. And him saying, oh, there's the loophole I never knew what to do with. Well played. I guess you go free. As a king and as a lord and as the giver of all things that you enjoyed and that you spat upon, he will hold you eternally accountable. There's no loopholes. Truth is truth, and God defines it. But this idea of headship brings to light the ultimate responsibility that every husband has in his home. I make this always when I do premarital counseling. I always look at the guy, and I'm going to push him hard, that in every way he frames and shapes his home. You cannot escape, husbands, the fact that you're the head of your home. You cannot escape it. You are the head. It doesn't say be the head, act like the head. It is simply the statement, you are head. And when you're a worthless, lazy, backbiting, complaining, sarcastic, harsh, abusive, mean-spirited, whatever it is kind of husband, that's the kind of headship you bring into your home. You say, well, I don't want to be that, so I'm leaving. Then you lead your family in absence, but you lead your family. You cannot escape that. Every one of you who are a husband, you lead your family in whatever way that you're doing it. It is an inescapable reality. And in the household, there's a collection of sinners. When you start your own home, men, you start a household, and it's just you. And you're pretty much a big enough sinner for you all by yourself. But then you decide that she, whoever she is, is pretty special. And then you finally get around to asking her, will you marry me? And she says, you're pretty special. I think I will. Or as my wife said when I said, will you marry me? And she laughed at me because she thought I wasn't serious. And then I'm like, no, I'm serious. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm psyched. And so we got married. <laughs> and we just joined two sinners together together. 
And when you join two sinners together in marriage, you start cranking out little sinners. And so we cranked out four more little sinners, and pretty soon my house is just abounding in sin. And I'm responsible for every one of them. And so are you, husbands, every one of them. Every one of them sins. Some of them will do incredible sinning, and some will do small sins, but they all are guilty before their Creator. And when you look at a household, though there are many who are guilty of a sin, someone stole a cookie, someone smacked the dog, someone disrespected mom, and that's all sin, there's only one in that whole household, men, who's responsible for it all. And that's you. So wise, before you get too upset that you're not the head of the home, let me just say this. You are only responsible ultimately for you. Men, it's a whole kit and caboodle. When the woman took the fruit and she ate, she sinned. But when Adam ate the fruit, all of us sinned. Do you see the difference? Do you see the magnitude of this? The billions of humans who have lived and died, all because one man took the fruit and he ate. But as the head of the home, all of humanity was brought along with him. For as in Adam all sinned and died, the Bible says. Now, if you can get your head around that, a lot of stories in the Bible will make more sense to you. We think as individuals, but the Bible things in ideas of household and corporate relationship. We talk about our own personal relationship with Jesus. The Bible almost never will talk about your relationship. It will always talk about the church. Almost all of the things that the Bible talks about in the New Testament related to what we think is for us, it's actually in the plural and it's for the whole church. In fact, where it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, do you know it doesn't say work out your, Cody, salvation? It's the plural you. It's work out your, Monsieur Day. He looks at the church at Philippi, and he speaks to them as one entity, and he says, Philippi, church, work out your salvation. Not salvations, one salvation and one group. We don't think that way. So when you read the sin of Achan in Joshua 7, where he goes and he takes some gold and silver, forbidden him in the city of Jericho, and he hides it, and then all kinds of bad things happen, and they ultimately figure out that it's Achan, right, that's done it. Does Achan die? Because he does die. Does he, is he the only one that dies? No. The whole household dies with him. And in America, we can't accept that. So we say, well, they, they were part of it because they helped hide it, and they would have known about it, and so they're guilty too. Nowhere does it say that. Achan saw it, Achan coveted it, Achan took it, Achan hid it. And everybody in his home dies. Why? Because he's the head. He's the head. Men, how often are you thinking about the stupid things you're doing and you've worked it out in your head that somehow it doesn't affect anyone else. It's a lie, and it's a lie from the pit of hell, and it's born here in the garden. Everything you do, men, matters. Everything you do matters. And you wonder why it is that my, your household maybe is this way or that. Is it possible as the head, you are leading it and establishing it in a way it ought not to go? All of this headship stuff and representative is all built around this man, Adam. And so we don't have the time to go into it, but I would commend to you a sermon series I did, and there's several sermons in it, but it's all on sermon audio in Romans chapter 5. I would ask you to listen to all my sermons in Romans 5. Don't freak out. I did a lot, but re listen to them all. But there's a series, I think there's four of them, called Two Men, Two Destinies. Because the Bible picks up Adam, and then it shows how he is the first Adam, and then the Bible shows that there was another called the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. And the Bible in Romans chapter 5 says that we have no peace with God because of our sin in Adam. Because Adam is our father, and we are therefore, the Bible would say it does say, we are in Adam. We can't escape it. He is our father. 
And all our guilt and everything ultimately finds its beginning in Adam. And because we are all in Adam, all sin. And all are dead. That's why you do what you do. Because you're in Adam. He's your father. And there's no peace. But then in Romans 1, 5, 1, he talks about us having peace. But it's through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. That just as the first Adam brought sin and death into the world, the second Adam, who is Jesus himself, undid all of that. And he becomes our life. And so he says, through faith, what is faith? Simply the, putting your hope and faith and trust upon what Christ is and who Christ is. He says, now something radical happens. You're no longer now because your hope is not in you, but in Adam only. Now listen, because folks, for some of you, if you will get this, your whole life will be different. You'll be called a Christian. You're, you're in Adam, and you're like, I don't want to be in Adam. I suck at being in Adam. I don't know what's going on, but I, I know something's happening. What is it? You need Christ. You need to see that Jesus Christ, when he put himself on the cross, that he became your offering for sin. He took your place. That when he died and rose again, that he took upon you the fullness of the punishment of sin, which is death. But he also took on the fullness of victory, which is life. And he conquered death. And the Bible says, if you will put your faith in what he did only... Something radical happens. You're no longer defined by the first Adam, but now you're defined by who? The second Adam, Christ. And so thou, in the New Testament, you'll see this phrase over and over again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new what? A new creation. Because the old creation belongs to Adam, but the new belongs to Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This story tells us everything that's wrong. Just here again, you know these words, most of you. In verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. The moment that Adam ate... Everything that they thought was going to be good is now ugly. And it's always Satan's way. Whatever it is, beloved, that you think you're going to get by doing whatever it is you're planning on doing this afternoon, it'll always be ugly. It will never give you what you're thinking. The ripples that took, went out from what Adam did that moment affected the entire universe. And it's right here where cancer cells began to grow. It's right there where marital infidelity began. It's where wars were fomented. This is where lies began to pile up and where friendships died. This is where sorrow became our daily bedfellow, where brokenness and strife became our constant companion, where regrets took root, where dreams died and vision became blindness. This, beloved, is where death was born. This is why babies die and grandmas, and you. And this is why we need a deliverer. So now you go home, and now you're confronted again. Is this true? It's that simple. You want to yawn, you want to fall asleep, you want to shake your head, you want to roll your eyes, do whatever it is you want to do. I, you know, I can't control that, but it's right there. For some reason, God brought you here this Sunday. God made you get up out of bed and come on a snowy day to show up here on this Sunday so that you might hear these words. Now you have them. Do you reject them? Do you believe them? My prayer is that God might so work that you can't sleep until you have finally figured it out that in everything other than Jesus Christ, there is nothing. But in Jesus Christ is life and that you will trust in him.